Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing an article from the April issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Mineral and Vitamin Considerations When Dry Lying Cows. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by one of the co-authors, Dr. Mary Junowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef Systems Specialist. Thanks for joining me today. Well, I'm glad to be here, Aaron. As we look towards this spring and summer, there's some concern by many across the state in terms of what are we going to be looking at for summer grass. In fact, out in the western part of the state here, I've had some conversations with some producers who are thinking about actually dry lotting cows as they look towards this spring and summer. As they think about doing that, there's some things that they need to consider in terms of the mineral and vitamin situation as they think about dry lotting cows, especially for an extended period of time. Share with us some key things that producers need to be paying attention to as they think about dry lot feeding cows and making sure that they're meeting the mineral and vitamin requirements that those cows need as they think about a different system than maybe they're traditionally on when they take those cows to grass. Yeah, well, Aaron, over the past few years, we've had more experience with dry lotting cows. I've had quite a few producers that do that, at least with some portion of their herd. And we've also been, you know, of course, doing some research at the university uh, with some dry lot cows. And and over time, we have learned quite a bit about uh, mineral and vitamin considerations. And so I think the first place to start is, is really to think about uh, our macro minerals. So thinking about, in particular, phosphorus, calcium, and magnesium. So we think about dry lotting cows, often we are going to use some type of concentrate in Nebraska. A lot of times we're going to use distillers at some portion of the diet. You know, it may be as low as 20%. It may be up to 50% of the diet, especially if we're going to limit feed. And with distillers comes a lot of phosphorus which is a benefit in that it means we don't have to supplement phosphorus. However, it does mean that we need to make sure we're adding enough calcium into the diet to keep that calcium to phosphorus ratio at least at a one-to-one. So for producers who are using distillers or even if they're using corn silage at higher proportions in the diet, corn silage also brings in a lot of phosphorus. And again, we need to start upping uh, the amount of calcium. So typically what we've seen is that we need that calcium level in a something like a four ounce mineral, something you'd be providing in about four ounces a day or a quarter of a pound. Uh, around 20 to 26% calcium is kind of what's needed to meet their needs. If we think about other considerations, most of the time if we're going to use either distillers or uh, corn silage, we probably do not need to be providing any kind of a phosphorus. Also, corn provides quite a bit of phosphorus as well. So that's also another great source of phosphorus. So if we're using those, we don't need to be adding phosphorus into the mineral. One of the things that comes with distillers beyond phosphorus is sulfur. And I think everybody recognizes that distillers can be high sulfur. And while with the type of diets we'd be feeding cows, which are going to have more forage in them, we don't have to worry as much about sulfur toxicity or polioencephalomalacia or brainers, whatever you may call it. We do have to worry about sulfur actually causing some antagonisms or basically 
negatively affecting some absorption of other minerals in the diet. And one that is very different from what we would traditionally think of is magnesium. It has been shown that in uh, high forage diets, uh, higher levels of sulfur, I mean, even 0.25 can start uh, reducing absorption of magnesium in the rumen and can lead to basically hypomagnesium, uh, which, you know, most people would think of as like grass tetany. And indeed, um, a couple years ago, I did come across that in several herds that I was working with. Before we recognized the need to actually supplement more magnesium, we had uh, some cows that were, you know, uh, twitchy. They had uh, some aggression. And then even in a couple herds, we had a couple cows that um, did die. And that was when we started trying to figure out what was going on. We sampled some blood. We did see that they did not have enough magnesium in the blood. And you go back and look at the diets and we'd be like, I don't understand what's going on because if you looked at the cow's requirement and then you looked at uh, what was being provided in the diet, it should have been enough, but we were not accounting for that negative effect of the sulfur in that diet actually impeding absorption. So just like in that fresh, lush green grass where we have high potassium and high nitrogen that actually negatively affect magnesium absorption. Um, in this case, it was sulfur that's doing that. And so all we needed to do is just like we would do with grass setting, we just feed a high mag mineral. So uh, again, a four ounce a day mineral, we're looking at 10 to 13% magnesium and that mineral solves our problem. And really, this is a consideration during lactation. It doesn't hurt to feed it the rest of the year, but if you're feeding a lactating cow, I would suggest going ahead and upping the amount of magnesium in that mineral if uh, you are feeding distillers. Mary, let's talk a little bit about feeding corn silage. That could be an option that folks are considering. What are some things to pay attention to with that? Well, I think corn silage, it can be a, a great feed stuff uh, for cows in confinement. But within siling uh, comes an additional challenge, and that is that any dirt that happens to be on that plant or that you happen to get during the harvest does become a potential problem because there's often a lot of iron in soil. And normally, that iron is not really available. It's pretty much it will be what we call inert. It just kind of passes through the animal, doesn't really do anything. However, when we in, have that fermentation that happens and we have that acidic environment, it actually makes uh, the iron become available to the animal for absorption. And unfortunately, we're almost always, uh, in fact, in 90% of the cases, in any situation for our ruminants in the U.S., we are not iron deficient by any means. We often have more iron than we ever need. In this case, we can actually have so much iron that it starts decreasing the absorption of other minerals. In particular, one that we usually do not worry about in our um, grazing situations, and that's manganese. So manganese is actually provided usually in reasonably um, high amounts in, in our grazing situations. And so we typically think about copper and zinc in grazing situations, and we still need to think about them in confinement. But now we got to add, if we're doing any kind of ensiled forage, corn silage, small cereal, um, if you're making some type of haylage, anytime you have fermentation, 
you do need to start thinking about manganese and supplementing manganese. And for four ounce mineral, I would typically suggest providing uh, about 2,600 parts per million in that particular mineral just to get enough manganese into them to overcome the potential antagonist of iron. Now, with that being said, you really want to look at the iron content of that silage. So take a sample and send it off because if it's really high, so if it's 200 parts per million, maybe 250, which is enough to start causing problems, that 2,600 parts per million of manganese is probably enough. But as it starts increasing in terms of the amount of iron, you're probably going to have to start feeding more and more levels of manganese to overcome that. Let's just talk about copper and zinc as well while we're thinking about the spectrum of trace minerals because pretty much all forage-based diets are deficient in copper and zinc. And when we have distillers in the diet or if we have this ensiled forages with, the, with some more iron in it, we're going to start having more issues with copper. In fact, in most of the situations that I have seen, we have to feed more than 100% of the copper requirement in the mineral to actually meet the needs of the cow. So if you were to think about the requirement of a cow, we say it's 10 parts per million, which if I was to say 10 parts per million and I wanted to figure out how much is that if I supplied just the requirement in the mineral, that would be about 1,300 parts per million. That would be providing 100% of her requirement. But typically, we see that to meet her needs, we're running somewhere around 2,000 parts per million, so almost 150% of the requirement being supplied by the supplement and does not account for anything that's actually in the diet itself. And that's because of these antagonists, like the sulfur, uh, like the iron, um, that's just tying up some of the copper that's in the diet. The other thing that I've noticed is that um, in Nebraska, on average, I'm seeing about 1.5 to 2 parts per million of molybdenum in our forages. And so molybdenum also ties up copper and may explain some of the reason why we have to feed a little bit more copper than I would have, have thought initially. Um, so need to feed a little bit more copper. And then we need to look at our zinc. And in general, the diets that we're feeding are going to be a bit deficient in zinc, but it's not going to be out of the realm of what you probably be providing in most of your normal minerals. You know, somewhere around uh, 4,000 parts per million of zinc uh, seems to be meeting her needs. And the other thing that I want to point out is that when we're talking about these trace minerals like manganese, copper, and zinc, you're very unlikely to see any kind of overt clinical deficiency signs. Where you'll pick up the problems is actually in the calf. And in particular, where we've seen some issues has been with manganese, we'll see some calves that are actually born with some deformities. In particular, they'll have really like almost like lax joints. So they have a really hard time standing uh, because it does affect their cartilage formation. Most people will think of them and see them and they'll think, oh, that's a weak calf. Um, but it's actually, they have a problem with their joints. And then with copper, it's usually immunity is where we see uh, the failure is that that calf just cannot mount an immune response, particularly to bacteria. And so a lot of times you don't really know you have a problem by looking at the cow. It's usually in the calf where we see it because 
for those trace minerals, the cow provides basically what that calf needs until it really starts eating a lot of solid feed. Um, and it provides it while they're in utero. So while that calf is inside the cow, that cow actually, if she has it to give, and that's the assumption, right? She has plenty of stores. She will actually shuttle a bunch of those trace minerals over to that calf and have really high stores in the liver of that calf when it's born so it can draw from them until it really starts getting a bunch of solid feed because milk is very, very poor source. So you got to make sure that during gestation, she's meeting her needs and has enough to build up some stores to pump it into that calf. Mary, in the article, you also talked about some challenges with vitamins as it relates to dry allotting cows. Share for some perspective on that. What are some things that need to be paid attention to as we think about vitamins? Yeah, so vitamin A is, is the big one. And um, it really came to our attention a couple years ago um, when we had a, a nutritional consulting company who works with some, some producers who dry lot, who are having some problems. And uh, they, they had had their vet out there. The calves were having a lot of um, disease issues. And um, then they started seeing actually some blind calves. And so they, of course, did some testing and realized they had vitamin A deficiency. And when we looked at what they were feeding, it should have been more than enough. And so that started us digging into the literature and also sampling um, some of our researchers to see where they were sitting. And what we realized is that um, likely the requirement as stated is is really sufficient to get us through, like, for instance, the winter when the cows actually have decent stores already built up from being on green grass. So green grass has about five times as much uh, vitamin A as really the next best stored forage, which is actually really high quality green uh, corn silage or green silage will be fairly good source of vitamin A. Now, I say high quality. Greenness really tells you a lot. The greener, uh, the more vitamin A it is that in any stored forage. But remember, green grass is five times as much as the best stored forage. So long story short, um, the requirement that is stated in our beef cattle requirements really assumes that they're going to have some stores to supplement the amount that's coming in through the diet. What we were seeing is that observation has suggested we may need to be feeding 75,000 international units to 100,000 international units per day to actually meet that cow's requirement. So for producers who are thinking about dry lotting cows, I think you have to ask yourself, how long are you going to be doing that? And are they going to have access to green grass during the year? For shorter periods, like what we would consider uh, like winter time, probably the traditional amount that we suggest, which is around 35 uh, to 40,000 international units per day, is probably sufficient because we are going to assume she has some stores. Uh, however, if, if she's not going to have green grass for very much of the year, and you're going to be solely relying on stored forages and concentrates, then we got to feed these higher levels. The other thing I want to point out is, you know, last year we, we had some areas that were pretty droughty and we did see that cows even coming off pasture in those droughty areas did not have good vitamin A status. So this year, if you were in a drought area and you decide that I'm going to go ahead and dry lot my cows, 
I would suggest you assume she doesn't have much for storage just based off of some of the samples we did in some herds um, where uh, really by July and August, I mean, there was pretty much only brown grass and uh, thus they didn't have much in terms of vitamin A and they used most of those stores up already. Anything else you'd like to add on this topic or key things you think producers should consider as they think about dry lotting cows related to minerals and vitamins? Well, I think the other thing that's really important to understand is that the mineral content uh, is is not actually, it does not necessarily dictate the cost. I've seen a lot of variability in mineral cost, and it seems like the handling and mixing costs can make up up to 50% of the cost of the mineral. And that means that sometimes people think, well, if I just don't put as much of X, Y, or Z in, it'll lower the cost. But if you're providing a mineral, you already have a big sunk cost in just getting that mineral mix. So you want to make sure you're meeting their needs. The other thing is that with dry lot cows, it's so different from the traditional systems that most of the commercial minerals are actually made uh, to target, right? So they fit those needs, but they don't fit the needs of this dry lot system. So getting a custom mineral uh, can be very beneficial for multiple reasons, one of which is it meets the needs. The other reason is that oftentimes custom minerals can uh, be lower cost than some of the commercial minerals, particularly if you're going to be throwing it into a diet or a TMR where you don't really need to be worrying about weatherization or intake control or anything like that. If you can, if you're going to be managing that intake and you're going to be providing it daily, um, then you don't need all those special features, which do have a cost associated with them. So I really do like um, getting a custom mineral made if I'm going to be feeding cows in dry lot, assuming that I can uh, find a mill that will make a batch size that I can work with. Uh, for instance, you know, if you only have 20 or 30 cows, you may not find a mill who's willing to do a custom mineral for anything less than two or three tons. And that may not work for you, particularly if you think about vitamin A and the fact that it does decrease in storage. So you don't want to let it sit for a whole year or more. However, you know, some mills will do a batch size as small as a ton. So it does pay to ask around and, and see. And also to get your mineral priced and check a few mills because there can be huge variation from mill to mill. As we think about the minerals that we're putting into our supplementation, anything we need to pay attention to there or make sure we're requesting as we think about the mineral source? Yeah, so I know that there's a, a lot of, I always get a lot of questions about organic or, or chelated minerals. And I, I do think they have a value if I need to change status very quickly. In general, if I think about organic or chelated minerals, they are more bioavailable than an inorganic. And we'll say sulfate is kind of as the uh, inorganic that is most commonly used. And it is quite available. Okay, so if I need to make a quick change, they can be beneficial from that standpoint. However, the way you need to think about them is the cost relative to the value. And so if it's Unless I'm having a problem that I just cannot keep my status maintained, oftentimes it's actually cheaper to feed the inorganic and maybe even feed a higher amount to reach the same level as an organic. 
typically, and it does vary depending on the mineral type, um, copper uh, and zinc, and then what, what type of uh, organic mineral it is, but really think 20 to 30% extra you get out of it. So unless the price is less than 20 to 30% more than uh, the inorganic, you might as well go with the inorganic and just feed a little bit more. That's kind of how I see that as, um, so bottom line, I would say start with inorganic. If we're still having problems, then we start thinking about organics or chelates. Anything else on this, Dr. Janowski, that you'd like to highlight as we point towards wrapping this up? You know, Aaron, I, I think that's pretty much it. But I will tell you that if a producer is thinking about dry lotting and, and wants a little help uh, evaluating their mineral program and a little suggestions, you know, uh, Extension's always here to help. So they can always give me a call or, uh, or give my co-author, Carla uh, Wilkie, a call, and uh, we'll be happy to help them. Well, thanks again for joining me today. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. But for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. At the website, there are additional resources on this topic.